Welcome to the Modernizer Die Podcast, CFML News Edition, where we keep you up to date with everything going on in the Cold Fusion community. We'll share the latest news on events, releases to engines, frameworks, libraries, and tools, as well as spotlighting quality content from the community. Hello and welcome to the Modernizer Die Podcast, CFML News Edition. It is September 7th. 2021. I'm Eric Peterson, and I'm joined today by Mr. Brad Wood. Hey, Brad. Welcome back to the podcast life. Yeah, it feels like it's been like a month since I've been on here. It's been letting you and Gavin have have all the fun. And it has been fun, but we've missed you. So glad to have you back. This episode... As well as all of our episodes are sponsored by Order Solutions, the makers of all your favorite box products. We invite you to say thanks back to Order Solutions by liking and subscribing to our videos on YouTube, signing up for an account on CFCast, which is releasing new uh, training content every week, becoming an Into the Box sponsor, which is coming up really close here, about two weeks, two and a half weeks. Yep. Or buying one of Ordis's books, like our new 102 Cold Box Quick Tips and Tricks book. Lastly, you can always support us through Patreon. We have 39 lovely Patreon supporters. Yes, all of you are lovely. Um, (laughs) Providing uh, all the funding for this podcast and 41% of the way to providing the funding for the Forgebox.io package repository. So we'll talk more about that at the end, as as well as what perks you can get. But those are some ways that you can say thank you and give back to Order Solutions. So we have a couple of uh, event stuff that happened this week. The first one that I saw was CF Summit has been announced. I saw that. I saw it because I saw some people on Twitter being all surprised that Cold Fusion still exists. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, we get it. Everyone uses that meme. Um, but yeah, December 7th and 8th. Now, what I haven't actually looked is, do we have the dates for ITB Latam yet? Because I know we were going to step that in December as well. Uh, we do not have the dates yet for that, but I would be guessing it's not going to be December 7th and 8th. <laughs> we, we should make sure whoever's setting the dates for that knows <laughs> about when uh, Adobe set their... It's interesting that they're, they push it a bit further back. They used to do it in October, November. Um, but since it's virtual, I suppose it was more convenient for them to do it in December. That's right. So you're, you're exactly right, too, that this is a, a virtual conference again. You can sign up right now, and we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, I haven't seen anything about a call for speakers yet. But they'll show you lots of lovely pictures of people that spoke last year, yeah, or maybe just past years. Your face is in there. It is. So I guess mostly lovely faces. Rack sheet is still on the list, even though we no longer even works for Adobe. So, so you can go register right now and be ready for that. It is virtual. It is free, <laughs> and uh, should be a good time. December seventh and eighth. Um, on the conference. Uh, news and events. Stay tuned in two days on Thursday. There's going to be a special Into the Box announcement coming. That's all Ooh. I can tell you. I'm sworn to secrecy. 
special into the box announcement, you say? Yes, two days, what, September what 9th. What could it mean? You'll have to stay tuned. <laughs> a couple other events coming up from Adobe. Adobe is going to do another one of their one-day workshops um, over in our for our European friends. This will be September 22nd from 9 to 5 o'clock Central European time. I had to convert 24-hour time there. Um, and this is with Damien, and I tried to look this up, uh, Bruendonks, I think. You Damien, me. you can let us know how to actually say your name, and we'll do it right from now on. <laughs> you know, I've been seeing the tweets for that, and I didn't realize that that was a, a European thing. Interesting. So are these online or in person? Yes, this is uh, online. Right, and so um, it's just in the time zone of... Mm -hmm. So you could go to it if you wanted to. If you live in America, it would just be like the middle of the night. True. So if you're a night owl, <laughs> this is perfect. Yeah. Um, or if you'd like, awake, then. or if you'd like to go something, uh, go to something during U.S. Uh, time zone work hours, Mark Takata will also be giving a webinar on the 22nd about installing Cold Fusion mm. on Azure and AWS. Competing, competing webinars. Uh, yeah, I like the name of that one. It's called Head in the Clouds, Installing Cold Fusion on Azure AWS with Mark Takata. That should be fun. I'm, I'm curious uh, what angle we'll be taking. I'm reading a description here. I, I'm curious if it's going to be like Docker-based or if it's just going to be more like EC2 instance kind of thing. We'll have to see. Really so you can sign up for both of those events right now. Uh, the, again, those are Wednesday, September 22nd. So it's the day before Into the Box. Okay. Let's jump over to our CFCast updates. We are continuing to release our quick videos. This week we talk about the M plus one problem and eager loading. Go through the step seven exercise and then on to scopes, which, I mean, I love all of Quick, um, but these are two of my favorite concepts because it's kind of where you step out of like, why am I not just writing queries to, oh, okay, <laughs> there's a lot of benefits to this. So Right. So so what exactly is the N plus one problem? Is that like those Facebook memes that says, do this math in your head and Get a bunch of, you know, <laughs> multiplication and addition. What is that? Not quite. This is where when you're trying to grab a bunch of data back, you end up gra um, executing N plus one queries, where that is you execute a query. For instance, if you're getting like um, posts and their author and you get 10 posts back, you'll end up doing and their author, you'll end up doing 11 queries because for each post you're doing a separate database query and Eager loading is how to solve that, so that no matter how many you bring back, you're just doing two queries. So it's one of the places where it's um it's a problem that everybody's going to run into, or I should say, most people will run into with their database design. And you can either write all the queries, um, you know, custom queries for each of these cases, or you develop a system like most ORMs have to solve this with eager loading. So. Yeah. Very nice. And then scopes are Quick's way of giving a name to a bit of SQL, whether that's adding a column, making a virtual column, uh, ordering, 
filtering, giving names to things so that your queries read very fluently. Fluently. Your, yes. your queries can read? <laughs> your code has become sentient. It's not fluent in the English language. <laughs> All right. So expect more up on for quick in the coming weeks. Step seven of 13, I think it was. Maybe 14. So nice i i've been i've been proud of the continual stream of content you guys have been getting on quick and i can be proud of it because i have nothing to do with it <laughs> i haven't been responsible for any of it it's it's been very nice the people subscribing to uh to cf casts I, I said on quick i meant on cf cast even though we're just talking about quick content people subscribing to cf cast definitely are getting regular uh fresh exclusive content which is pretty cool Absolutely. I've been super happy to see that as well. It is, I can't think of another uh, Cold Fusion specific training uh, quite like it. That's because so. there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's jump over talking about conferences. We've mentioned a lot of these already. We mentioned Adobe Cold Fusion Summit is available to register, it will be December mm -hmm. 7th and 8th, virtual. And Into the Box is in two and a half weeks. September, Live and in person. <laughs> September 23rd and 24th. You can go and register as well as view the speaker lineup and decide which ones you're going to attend in person and which ones you're going to watch after the fact. Mm -hmm. Now's the time to talk to your boss about getting those tickets. That's right. We want to see, we want to see you guys there for the, the after parties. And as always, if you are starved for conferences, uh, comps.tech is our friend. You can go there and search by language, location, um, and online, in-person, and find a conference to fit that need you have. <laughs> <laughs> You're addicted. You're sick, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's jump into our blogs, tweets, and videos of the week. Uh, first up, let's talk about one I saw from Mr. Mark Takata over on the Cold Fusion portal. It might have been a little... I don't think we covered it last week. It was a little older, older, but it's about the Cold Fusion CLI. And I thought this would be a fun one to talk about, especially with our resident CLI expert here. Uh, kind of compare and contrast with Command Box. So in Cold Fusion 2021, Adobe released a command line interface, which in this article, Mark's just going through kind of the basics where you can use it like a like a REPL or even yeah. a little bit of a script runner. Um, I'm a little excited to see more when it gets into like the new CFPM functionality in 2021, because that's the part I have no idea what it's doing. <clears throat> well, the funny thing is CFPM, from my understanding, is really wholly unrelated to the, the CF CLI. It's okay. just a it's just a completely separate I mean there's a batch file and a shell script depending on what operating system you're on that calls some jars. I don't I don't now it may share some stuff behind the scenes that the CF CLI runs on, but it's not like a plugin or a module really in the same manner of like, you know, command box adds things in. The the CFPM is just a kind of a separate set of jars from what I've seen that Downloads and installs modules in the Cold Fusion 2021. Even the CFCLI is sort of just a separate batch file you can run or shell script that 
essentially gives you uh, a REPL and the ability to run, you know, stock uh, CFM files, which is more or less close to the original functionality that command box shipped with like six years ago. Right. Um, except for certain Adobe Cold Fusion, and you have to actually like install Cold Fusion, you know, to run it. It just kind of piggybacks off the jars in your existing Cold Fusion installation. So it's not it's not quite as uh, as self-contained as um, as command box, but um, it's more just kind of a, a bolt-on, you know, you have Adobe Cold Fusion installed. Even the CLI kind of uses those jars. Uh, Mark did mention that you can get the light version, um, which is like 147 megs. Um, that's not terrible. Um, now that I quit using Pack 200 because Java 14 drops support for it, um, Command Box is like 80 megs now, um, which doesn't include the JRE. So uh, that's that's honestly pretty nice compared to the fact that Adobe Cold Fusion Wars used to be about 300 megs just for the Cold Fusion you know jars without the JRE. So um anyway yeah i mean it's it's interesting i mean um i wouldn't use it in the, personally unless i actually wanted to use a REPL built on adobe cold fusion i usually just use tri cf if I ever come into that um but yeah it's it's almost so funny that the REPL. i kind of get the feeling very few people ever use the REPL. i actually use command boxes REPL. Uh, quite a bit just for toying around. Um, I don't. I, I I don't get many questions on the repls, but I don't know how many people ever just crack open the repl to run some code and see what it does. I don't know. Maybe it's not that many. Um, but unfortunately, you know the the CLI that Adobe has doesn't have, you know, any sort of like command, you know, concept. There's no scaffolding command. There's no extensibility. There's no, you know, lifecycle events. There's not, you know, plugins with frameworks and things like that. As far as I know, it's basically just uh, a REPL and, you know, include a, a CLI file or a, a CFM file. It is, is, it is interesting that they added some additional scopes into their REPL. Um, uh, scrolling down here. Because um, they have application argument, request this. Um, where's this? I thought there was a CGI scope they added. Where did it go? I mean, I, I just read this blog post the other day. Um, oh, it's, it's CLI. They have like an object called CLI that you can use to get arguments and such. Right. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting is in command box, you can do the basic, like, here's a CFM file, just run it. Um, but I consider that to be really janky and I don't even recommend it anymore. Um, command box has superseded that with task runners, um, where instead of a CFM file, which isn't, isn't encapsulated very well, um, you, you, know, you can't extend things. There's not like a clear arguments coming in, return values coming out. Task runners are implemented as a, as a CFC with a run method. And so I really like the, the encapsulation of that, you know, and then you just use the regular arguments scope to get things in. And we have things like the print helper. Um, so they, they kind of got a slightly different direction with some of the stuff they do, but you can execute similar deals. Now, I, I think it would be fairly difficult to do anything too awfully complicated um, from Adobe CLI. And one of the main reasons is Lucy server has a heap of features that Adobe doesn't have. Um, for instance, the ability to set up data sources um, on the fly. In CF Query, in Lucy, you can pass a struct into the data source argument of CF Query. And instead of saying you know, data source equals a string, which is the name of my data source, you can have in your CF Query tag, data source equals a struct that defines all the data and it creates an on the fly data source. Um, you can do that in pretty much all the database tags in Lucy. Uh, you can also create on-the-fly data sources with the CF application tag. Again, a feature Adobe doesn't even have. 
Um, there's a lot of stuff I think would probably be pretty difficult to do um, anything too difficult. But anyway, I mean, it is what it is. Um, it, it is interesting to look at it just since I've, I've spent the last five or six years building things, but on top of, uh, on top of Lucy. Um, we had a question in the chat. Why do you think Adobe came out with a CLI? Um, I don't know, probably because people asked for it. Uh, we, we had looked at creating an Adobe version of Command Box originally. In fact, I'd even talked to Rakshith about it uh, years ago. Um, and it wouldn't have been too impossible, um, you know, to have the same Command Box code just bootstrapped by Adobe. Um, there's a couple main reasons we just didn't go down the, um, we didn't go down that path. The biggest one is it was nearly impossible to encapsulate Adobe in as small um, and convenient of a package as it was Lucy. And the second thing was we were already a couple of years of development into the command box CLI. And I had hundreds of places where I was using Lucy specific features and syntaxes that Adobe didn't support. And I would have had to go back and refactor those. And so there really wasn't a, um, there wasn't a huge benefit to having an Adobe version of command box. Because in reality, most people using command box didn't really care. It was a black box, it just did stuff. For instance, did you know the Docker CLI is written in Go? No, because you probably don't care, right? You know the Vagrant's written in Ruby? No, because you probably don't care, right? You know the Homebrew is written in Ruby? No, you probably don't care, right? It's just, it's just a tool, it does things. So outside of the REPL and the script execution, it's just a CLI that does stuff. Who cares what's under the hood? So for the most part, we're like, you know, we could make an Adobe version of Command Box. I don't think most people care. They'd be like, does it still start a server? Great, that's all I wanted to do. Um, so there just wasn't a huge like cost benefit thing there for us to make um, an Adobe version. So Adobe eventually kind of made their own version, um, but it's obviously, you know, very limited in scope of what it does. But anyway, enough on that. I think the CLI stuff is interesting and I'm glad Adobe has it. It's like, you know, a fraction of what Command Box does, um, but, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> that was a fun history lesson there. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, all kinds of history. <laughs> all right, let's jump into uh, the Ben Nadal corner. Um, thanks to Ben, we have a show this week. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess we'd have a show. Thanks to Ben, we have three more blog posts to talk about. So let's jump into them. Speaking of some developer ergonomics, uh, from Lucy to Cold Fusion. This first blog post is about using relative file paths to configure application mappings. Um, and I'll be honest, I had not thought of this. So Ben's talking about how Adobe's um, application mappings are always like, um, what's the word, engine level? Or server, server root, there you go. It, it's based on where the server's installed, not necessarily where your application's running. And um, you mean if, if you use a relative path, not an absolute yes, path? a relative. Oh, path. weird. I'll be honest. I always assumed it just had to be an absolute path because I've always, always just expanded my path. I've never even tried relative. So I, I, and I'm probably with because, you. <laughs> probably because it never worked when I did. <laughs> I, I, I 100% <laughs> agree. So he has a line um, in his out, output. Let me.
Okay. Sorry about the losing audio. We'll talk about it without showing the screen because evidently I don't have the right audio uh, when set you, up there. When you switch to the screen share, I bet it killed the audio. I apologize. Okay. Yeah, we just gave the secret to the universe away and <laughs> you guys didn't even hear it. My gosh. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about there's a there's a line and it's in the, the cold box template, it's in Ben's example, getting the directory from the current template path. It's a line that I've seen in every application CFC and cold box. Um, but you don't need it in Lucy. You can just have dot slash. And it is correct in every case that he tried it on. So his examples do it in the root, it does it in a subfolder or in two subfolders. Um and it always has the right relative paths, whereas Adobe is going from his root folder no matter where he started his server. It's where, or sorry, where the application CFC is running. So definitely check out the blog post. Um, yeah, it was I don't just think one I was of those places of... where I'm not going to change anything because I usually have to support both. Right, but right. it was a nice, like, oh, that is very nice. Thank you, Lucy. I hope this is supported everywhere one day. <laughs> I've always known applications to be a little finicky, and this probably explains some of the minor differences I've noticed before, but I was never quite sure, you know, why it was happening. But yeah, that, I'm not at all surprised that, that Lucy goes a little extra step and, and makes those relative paths something you probably actually want them to be. Yep. The next on the Ben Nadal train is maintaining route information during a single page application authentication. This is a, a mouthful to talk about. His application um, is an Angular JS app that uses, um, it's not hash routing. What do they call it? Fragment routing. But that's still on the hash, isn't it? It is like a different word for it, but I think the technical term is the fragment of the URL. So this is the part where up in the URL after the query string, um, if there is one after the, the path, you can have a hash sign and then anything you want. So that's what like anchor tags use to like route during mm -hmm. to the same page. And uh, single page applications use that to change the route locally in JavaScript. And this was mostly used for older browsers that couldn't use the new APIs. Um, ben mentions their application. Or just for deep linking usually. Um, yes, their application supported like back to, what was it, IE6? IE6. <laughs> yeah, that's insanely old, holy cow. Um, and so <laughs> odds are if you're, especially if you're starting a new application, you won't need to do this. But um, you might find this in other places where anything in that that fragment is not passed to uh, your backend. It's not passed to Cold Fusion. And so he talks about his ways of using query string parameters to do the correct redirects and stick that in the hash in the end. So it, it, it's a bit of juggling, and he goes through some ways to do that and um, also talks about some security implications you'll want to look out for. I think my favorite thing was he has a dynamic URL cold fusion component he has. Which I was is, just looking at that. <laughs> parse URL. It's basically you know a, a, a URL builder, which there's a Java one underneath you can use too, but I love builder components. I guess I am say, a this, Java this, developer then, right? This looks <laughs> a lot like the underlying JDK classes for, for URL, which 
I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what he's using. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So if you are <laughs> in the same position, especially he mentioned emails, like you're sending out an email, you want a deep link to something, he'll control that by using a query string parameter instead of the fragment. So. All right, we have one more to talk about here, which is, I wish my relational database tables were narrower. I didn't see this one, but he must not have tweeted it with a cold fusion hashtag. So this one I brought in, not necessarily cold fusion specific, but since cold fusion is a backend language and we love it for its ease in querying databases, seems relevant to talk about. So this was talking about, I think the impetus was he wanted it to, when he queried a database, to use as many of the columns that were listed there in his data that he returns. Um, so the opposite would be you're querying the table, you only need two columns from it, but there are 50, you know. You, um, obviously you can select just those two columns, but he goes through a, a list of benefits that he sees in having these narrower tables. Um, things like less data being read off the disk or in the memory, fewer locks, uh, melee disorder so, tables. So when he says a narrower table, he means having more tables with fewer, more specific, more really it's talking about normalization is what it sounds like. Right? Uh, possibly, yeah. More tables with fewer columns. And I don't know if it's necessarily normalization um, because in some of these cases, you're going to end up with a table that is like a has one relationship, right? A user has a profile and you haven't necessarily normalized anything, but you have made it so that you're not accessing all the data every time. So um, he didn't give any concrete examples, but talked about a few things. Uh, my favorite part of this article was there are, at least a dozen links to other articles he's written about index design, index structure, transactional locks, things like that, that um, you're going to run into. So, um, so it was interesting. And in a, it didn't actually say you should always do this. It was more exploring the idea of what would an, a table with fewer columns, this narrow table, what would that do to our, to our performance, to our code. So I really, I really think he's just talking about normalization, but he's not using the word normalization. I mean, I think in some cases that's true. I think in other cases it, it <clears throat> can also just be, um, when do you split a table, even if it's already, it's already normalized. Like I said, like a user and a user profile. Well, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, the main pin of normalization is that every column on the table should be an attribute that applies specifically to the primary key of that table. And you can make an argument that your, you know, profile country or whatever applies to the profile, not to the user. Um, and so you say, well, there should be a profile ID and the attributes of that profile should go in the separate table. But it, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I've always been a fan of, of highly normalized databases, but they definitely add complexity and they add bigger joins. They add more <clears throat> database maintenance um, and they can be a performance issue. It's especially if you find yourself doing a lot of like left adder joins on them, you know, big tables. Um, I, I've worked at several places where we had data, databases with tons of tables, very normalized, 
but then due to performance issues with very, you know, highly, not highly, but uh, often accessed data, we would wind up with some, you know, denormalized table that we would kind of keep in sync with the real tables that would have four or five tables of really useful like order information. We combine the addresses, the vendor, the client, and the order, all the one big, nice fat table we'd keep in sync. And then we could do these like super fast queries against them yep. with all the indexes, which I mean, kind of felt like, well, geez, why didn't we do this in the first place? But it still allowed our tables to match kind of our, our object model and to, you know, to maintain the constraints. But then we just had to deal sometimes with the, with the performance of taking 17 joins just to figure out what status the order was in. Um, I know one that I've always ran into that with are like, I, I, I think of them like status or type columns. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, this order is in the status of, and you want it to be denormalized, so you're like, status one, which is mm-hmm. pending, or two is completed. But then you always want the word, because who knows what status two is? And um, it's just always kind yes. of funny. Um, yes. More modern databases have, like, enum columns now, where you can say this this column mm-hmm. status is one of these five things, and then it is still denormalized without having this separate table. I appreciate that. That's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, because so. I've, I've always been a fan of the utility table kind of concept. You have these, you know, list of things. And if they're good, it's just even worse because you've got these, you know, <laughs> order is status, blah, good. And you're like, what the heck is that? Um, and so I'll end up creating a view of almost every single table that pulls in all the utility things. But yeah, you start looking at the execution plan behind the scenes and there's a lot of different tables that all get pulled together to to bring that data in yeah. yeah i think you have to be pragmatic you know mm-hmm. you have to kind of go one direction until it hurts and say okay so do we back off a little you know what what ultimately does make our jobs as developers as easy including the long-term maintenance as well as you know just the development of the app index uh, so index views were just mentioned in the comments i i've had like a bit of a love-hate relationship with index views only because I swear, and maybe this is just me, like every time I ever tried to use an index view, thinking like, oh, this will solve all my problems. It was always on SQL Server, Microsoft SQL Server, which has like a whole list of caveats. It's like, you can use an index view unless you're doing one of these 78 things. And I would always have some reason that's like, oh, you're using a group by with an aggregate, the left adder join. Nope, you can't use one. And so I, I never would be able to, it seemed, use an index view successfully. I always have some silly reason why you know it wouldn't work for me um but my experience with sql server might not be consistent with oracle or postgresql or whatever database to support index views right yeah i think you, you hit it on and it's in this article as well like do your normal sql stuff until it hurts and then you just then you <laughs> jump into making it not hurt right normalize your tables um name things right and then if it starts to get slow that's when you get to look into more complex indexes or even some denormalization or anything that stems the bleeding (laughs) (laughs) i've definitely seen the opposite end which has worked with some really old you know db2 databases that were on an as400 and they would have like 100 columns in every table because they would just add more columns just and just make these massive tables that destroyed everything they'd ever want to store about a user and, you know, those definitely came with their own set of issues. They made for easy select statements, That's but manage, managing the data was just terrible on those databases. That, that was definitely paying the, the wrong direction. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. That's taking us through the end of our blogs, tweets, and videos of the week.
and we're on to find a job. So oh, over yeah. at our friends at getcfmljobs.com, we have over 180 equal fusion positions currently listed. There are two new ones this week, both remote positions um, at, with U.S. work availability. Aren't they all these days? Um, the first one is a remote position that also talked about working with a a Latin America country. Yeah. I didn't see anything that said you needed to know, uh, to speak Spanish for this job, but there is, it is talking about working with Blair's um, dev fastest growing companies in Latin America. And then the other one is a mid to senior level. It's a six month contract position full-time with a option to hire on at the end potentially so both those are available solutions yes nice just scanning through to see how many buzzwords do they use the term (laughs) full stack anyway actually that's that's the word you see on every resume ever there's not a developer with a resume who doesn't say full stack somewhere oh i i know plenty of front-end developers that would never say full stack so, oh, good for them. I don't know many people that are just back end. That's it's it seems to be either full stack or front end. So yeah. I don't know. We don't, we don't really list any technologies. <laughs> I mean outside of J2 EE application servers. I was hoping maybe they'd have like you know cold box or something cool in here, but uh no both these seem to be maybe uh Working on some of their existing platforms. Oh, from what this, I was. This second job inferring. requires you to know how to start and stop a web server. Woo. That's a high bar, people. Box <laughs> server start. Yeah, don't get the job. <laughs> okay, oh. um, let's go on to our Forgebox module of the week. We had an update to our CV security module. Now with refresh token support. So for all of you using JWTs with CB security, you might have been wishing for refresh tokens, which the idea is instead of just getting one token back from your login endpoint, you get back a short-lived authentication token or access token and a longer-lived refresh token, which you can exchange for an access token before it expires. I actually had to use that with an OAuth (laughs) interface somewhat recently. Um, I thought it was a little weird because I was like, if you're going to give me my token, and then, by the way, before it was expires, use this to come back and get another one. I was curious why they didn't just give me a token that didn't expire as quickly in the first place. But I don't know. I think Maybe it's if, is... if your token gets, um, uh, like, leaked, that the access token can't be used. But if your refresh token gets leaked, they can get an access token. So, Well, yeah, that was my thought was, like, if it's if somebody somehow, I don't know if it'd be like a man in the middle attack or what, but if somebody got the access token and the refresh token, well, couldn't they also just use that refresh token to get like endless access tokens? But maybe there's maybe there's more to this that I haven't thought out. That's entirely possible. Yeah. But uh, it depends on your implementation and your settings. Some places they'll let you infinitely um, trade in a refresh token. Some will have them expire, and you need to log in still at after a certain pay, uh, point. It's sort of a pain because when I ran into this somewhat recently, I was working with the third party API, you know, uh, and, and it wasn't like a, a, well, it was a single sign on deal, but it was just, you know, behind the scenes, a user clicks a button in an app and we go and get data from this third party thing. 
And we had, you know, we had to authenticate and get this OAuth token, but then we had to keep the refresh token on hand. And then every single, you know, HTTP call we made to this remote API, we had to watch and see if we came back with an error that said, oh, your token's expired. And then, oh crap, uh, where's the refresh token? Okay, <laughs> get a new token. What the crap was I doing? Okay, resend the request now with a new token. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, so, this is terrible. Like, I can't just send your request with a token. It's like, maybe will it work this time? Oh, good. I, that one went through. Yeah, you know. I 100% hear you. And that's one of the things I was so <laughs> excited about in our CB security implementation is there is an option to auto-refresh your tokens in headers. Mm, I and love so that. In addition to passing through like your, your author- authorization header, you can pass through, um, by default, I think it's X refresh token, but you can name it what you want. And uh, CB Security will detect, are you, if your token is expired, but you passed a valid refresh token, we will issue new tokens, keep you logged in, and we'll send them back in response headers. And so now Ooh. your client your client side just needs to always send those tokens, and if there are new ones that come back, save them in whatever storage that you're doing. So there's none of that, like you said, this like three-step dance of <laughs> try, oh no, then refresh, then do original, and yeah. So it makes yeah, sure I you're not in an like infinite that, loop. Though. so yeah i i was super happy to see that it is off by default um probably just not to surprise anybody i immediately turned it on for the implementation i did because that is very handy saves a ton of client side code (laughs) so i like it well i mean this is good stuff to have because a lot of people are using you know cold fusion even you know cold box powered rest apis as you know a back-end in front of you know some kind of single page amazingness or just a, a public API, and you know having this kind of functionality that we can have baked in um, through CB Security, I think is a real benefit because there's a lot of applications using this. So very cool. Awesome. On to our VS Code hint tip trick of the week. I feel like extension should be in there somewhere too because that's mostly mm-hmm. what we talk about. Um, <clears throat> this week, I chose the SQL Server extension for Microsoft. Um, for one, actually, for one specific feature, it does a lot more. Um, but you can execute like a script or a SQL query against the database and see it in your VS Code window. But my favorite thing is then you can like right click on it and save it to JSON which just made me happy. It's like, let oh, me nice. grab this whole response and now it's an array of objects. So, so there's a lot more this, in there. Is this made by Microsoft? It, it looks is, like it. yes. So I'm kind of curious if they're competing with their own SQL Server Management Studio here. This definitely doesn't do <clears throat> most of that stuff. <laughs> well, right, I guess um, I wouldn't expect it to. I mean, because Management Studio can be a massive download. I mean, you get a new like laptop and you're like, oh, I got to do some work with a client SQL Server database. Let me just download this 900 megabyte installer, right? You know, <laughs> so I can run a SQL query, um, which is it's like, oh, you, you need eight new versions of .NET, you know, and runtime libraries to make it work. So, I mean, if this is like a super lightweight, like do some basic database stuff. I'm all for it. It's just kind of interesting. I, I'm, I'm curious if they're trying to solve things with this. They don't solve an SSMS 
or if they're kind of admitting that SSMS is like a total like dog and a bit of a pain to use. <laughs> and I also want to know how it handles Windows authentication because half the databases I interact with, I have to use Windows authentication, which over like a VPN where my actual computer itself isn't on the domain is a bit of pain. I have to have a batch file that I start, um, you know, SSMS with using the right username, put in the password, just a total janky thing. I have to have a separate SSMS window. I'm really curious if they've addressed that kind of stuff here. Or maybe they haven't, and I'm just, you know, have my hopes up too high. <laughs> Probably the latter. Um, Probably the latter. Um, yeah, I, another reason that you'll install this is just for the, the nice syntax highlighting especially if you have any like t-sql scripts you're going to want that it will include intellisense go to definitions things like that oh yes that's worth it you know i was just messing with some local sql scripts and i was just editing locally i didn't want to run them and i was opening them up in like cf builder or something it was like no code highlighted i'm like oh this is like stupid i don't but i, I didn't want to open them up in management studio because it takes like 10 seconds when you double click on the sql file before it finally opens up I just need to throw this into VS Code, and it would have solved all my problems. There you go. So, I, side note, there is a new... I am trying to find the name of it, but kind of a a new v successor to SQL Server Management Studio that is oh, yeah? like Electron-based, kind of VS Code-based even. I need is, to, that, is that more along the lines of like what the Azure SQL Server? Yeah, Azure Data is? Management or something like that. Yeah, I looked at that once and I hated the UI and I don't think I ever opened it again. <laughs> I, I have decided after, you know, however many years it's been of working with databases that there is no such thing as a good database client. Like there's just too much that they have to do to be like beautifully designed. It's just toolbars on toolbars or they hide everything and you can never figure well, right. out right yeah because they they try to make it look simple and they hide it all and you're like where's yeah. all the stuff so uh, Azure... I, I recently tried to use heidi sql to figure out how to use postgres the other day and that was like almost a mistake because trying to use like a generic tool that like didn't really at all match all the little idiosyncrasies of postgres was actually more confusing <laughs> so Azure Data Studio, as brought up by Charlie, is the name of that one. So Okay, yeah, I have seen that. And it is interesting. <laughs> um while we're on the SQL clients, so my favorite one I've ever used is Data Grip by the IntelliJ folks. Is that um, a Mac? It's for all of the platforms. It's oh. the same people that make um the IntelliJ IDE idea or Android Studio. They make a whole bunch of other like C, uh, specific uh, language specific IDEs. I lost your voice, sir. We lost my voice. Hello. Am I back? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Okay. Um. Sorry about that. Yeah. So they. It's really Baby good. Grip. It's still toolbars on toolbars, but it was fast. The only thing was I didn't want to pay their. They're kind of expensive. <laughs> so most of the time I use oh, really? a um, D-Beaver, which is an open source one that it works. You know, like I said, I don't think there's a good option. There's just not terrible options. <laughs> once, I, once I get used to a tool and I finally kind of get the, the keyboard shortcuts memorized, 
I'll, I'll end up sticking with that tool for a while just because I kind of know it still works, which is why I mean, I've used Heidi SQL for years for MySQL and as of recently Postgres. I mean, it's not really great, but at least I vaguely kind of understand how the crazy thing works. And so, you know, I, I'd rather stick with that than trying to install something new and just being like lost all over again. But mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it's free, so I, I can't complain too hard about something that's free. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Um, I'm jumping back to something way back there because it's jumped back in my head. You mentioned that with a CLI tool, nobody cares what it's written in. And Usually, yes. I was playing around with a client's um, perform. We were trying to do some load testing and they wanted to use a new tool called K6. And this was the first time I've ever seen um, a tool that is written in Go but the file that you write to execute your tests is still JavaScript. Well, and I thought that was a very, probably a good choice because they didn't want Node to be the thing running. They wanted Go. They wanted all the, um, you know, async stuff that they get from that, but they still wanted to write JavaScript. I just thought that was an interesting choice. So. I'm curious what, what library they're using in Go. And I don't really know much about Golang, but I'm curious what they're using in Golang that runs the JavaScript. Right, right. It's like, they run it and then probably build up some sort of native Go structure to then execute. But that was an interesting choice. They could be, they could be <laughs> transpiling, transpiling if it's simple enough. But yeah, that, that is an interesting yeah. idea. It, it was actually JavaScript functions, so it wasn't just like, here's a JSON object. So they're right, doing right, something right. crazy there. <laughs> interesting. You know, we were really close to building command box in Node originally, just because... We just kind of figured, oh, well, we'll use Node. And then I'm glad we went with ColdFusion just because it was, made it much more fun. <laughs> and I get a lot more pull requests than I probably would if we'd used a different language. And you're not spending every uh, other day updating the dependency because of some... <laughs> you because know, you of say, Node. <laughs> you, you say that, but um, I I do spend a lot of time just updating all the jars, yeah. all the Java dependencies that I yeah, use in Sandbox. Probably not nearly as bad if it were node you know there might only be like 10 or so where it'd probably be hundreds of a node but <laughs> I, I can't i can't say that it's you know not non-existent that do that all righty i think that brings us here to the end of our episode today and thanking our lovely patreon supporters so patreon.com slash order solutions you can view more info and see the packages we have. Bronze packages and up, you'll get a free Forgebox Pro and CFCast subscription as well. And all of our Patreon supporters have access to a private forum on our community website as well as a badge to wear on that community website to show their support. And we'd like to end now by having Mr. Brad Wood butcher everybody's name and thank them. Hmm. All right, thank you to our lovely, beautiful Patreon supporters. Uh, John Wilson from Synaptrix, Don Bellamy, Eric Hoffman, David Bellinger, Dean Maunder, Gary Knight, Giancarlo Gomez, Jonathan Perret, Mario Rodriguez, Jeffrey McGee from Sunstar Media, Yogesh Mathur, Joseph Lamry, Ben Nadell, Brett DeLine, Carl Von Stetten, Charlie Earhart, Dan Carr, Daniel Garcia, Diego Snicky, Edgardo Cabezas, Jan Yannick, Jason Diger, Jeff McLean, Jeremy Adams, Jonas Erickson, 
Jordan Clark, Kai Koenig, Laxma, Ends with a T, Leon Sarimelis, Matthew Darby, Matthew Clemente, Mingo Hagen, Patrick Flynn, Ross Phillips, Scott, Scott Steinbeck, Sean Oden, Stephanie Monge, and Stephen Klotz. Woo! I swear that list gets longer every time. I love it. <laughs> Thank you all for supporting us. We love doing this podcast with you. And we will see you next week. Adios, amigos. Show notes for this episode can be found at cfmlnews.modernizeordie.io, where you can also subscribe to your favorite podcast player like Spotify or iTunes. We also have the link to YouTube to find more videos just like this. The music used in this podcast is under a royalty-free license from Sound.com and Blue Tree Audio.